Well, when you begin to read through the Bible, one of the things that you learn pretty quickly is that history, history isn't arbitrary. What I mean by that is that history is not just a collection of days that are kind of strung together without origin, without meaning, and without destiny. Rather, one of the things that we learn whenever we start reading through the Bible is that God tells us that history has a beginning and history will have an end. And that literally every second from the beginning to the end is eternally meaningful. Every moment matters. And God is in complete control of every one of those moments. And that He has a plan that He is working out from beginning to the end. And that every one of us, in one way, shape, or form, is part of that plan. That He is working out His his eternal wisdom in and through our lives. It's an, it's an amazing thing. One of the other things that we learn as we read through the Bible is that at the end, that every single person will be called to an account of the way that we lived with the moments that He gave us. That every word that we speak, every motive that we had, every action, that we engaged in, will be brought before a holy God. That their history is moving to a moment, as it were. An encounter with the Almighty, where all secrets will be exposed. And all good will be praised, and all evil will be punished. We also learn that the main point of the Bible is that the only way that anyone can escape that judgment and to be received on that final day, is to trust in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the provision that God has given. The one who came and lived a perfect life that we didn't live, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and now in Him, we can have forgiveness of sins. But that all of history is moving to to a moment where God will judge everyone. Now, for Christians, we hear that, and it warms our hearts. And we love that. We sing songs about that. We, we encourage one another with promises about that, that Jesus is coming back, and He's going to judge the world, and He's going to rid the world of evil. But others scoff at that. Others look at that idea and say, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? That's just mind control to try and keep people to, to not kill each other. And they'll scoff at the idea that there is a day of judgment that is coming for all people. And that is one of the things that Peter takes up and addresses in the book of 2 Peter. And that's where we'll be for our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible right in front of you in the pew rack, you should find a Bible uh, right there and turn to page 1019. 1019. Uh, We're just going to kind of go verse by verse, line by line, through this first part of of chapter 3. And as we've been studying through 2 Peter, we've we've learned that Peter's main goal in this is to help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He wants the churches to be built up and strengthened because persecution is coming and also false prophets are coming. And the main thing that the false prophets were saying is, everything that you've heard about Jesus, 
that's good, that's good, that's good, but it's all spiritual, and it has no actual physical impact. Meaning, Jesus isn't physically going to return and isn't literally going to bring everybody up to a final judgment. That what really matters is, is how you feel spiritually. It's very abstract. And Peter's saying, no, 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 that is a deadly lie. History is moving to a moment, and there will literally be a judgment. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he lays out before us his, his argument and things that we need to consider about that coming day. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, down through verse 13, and ask that you would follow along with me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following after their own sinful desires. Verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is a weighty and wonderful text. One that captures really the whole span of human history and what God is doing. And to help us to understand some important things that are here in these 13 verses, we're going to make six observations. We're just going to walk through, and I'll, I'll highlight them for you as we move from one to the other. We're just going to notice six things that Peter lays out for us that will help us to not misunderstand God's patience.
in history. The first thing that we need to notice here comes from verses 1 and 2, and it's this. Sincere minds. Sincere minds. Look again at verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter says, both times that I've written you, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, in both of them I've had one aim. And that aim is to stir up your sincere mind. Stirring up, it means to, to awaken, to, to make alert. Peter is here with his writing. He's going after their, their hearts and their affections and their, their minds. And do you, do you notice here what he calls their mind? It's our first point, sincere mind. The, the word there, sincere, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. It, it, it captures the idea of a pure. It, it shows up in Philippians 1.10, which reads it this way. Approve what is excellent and so be pure or sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. Both times that word is used is in the context of Jesus is coming back. Have pure mind. He's aiming to bring purity to our pondering. Sobriety to our mindset. To lift our affections toward eternal treasures. He says, guys, listen. In the midst of all of this, you need to look up. You need to to look up toward heaven. And he does this by way of reminder. He wants them to freshly recall, notice there in the text, the predictions of the prophets, and the commands of the Lord. He says, these are the two things that I want before your mind at all times. And specifically here, I think in the context, he's talking about predictions and commands that remind them that all of life is moving to that final moment when you will stand before God. He says, church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not be like the scoffers who hear God's predictions from the prophets and blow them off, but I want you to take them to heart. Hear words like like what came from the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he said this, The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You see that contrast? He says, keep that kind of promise from the prophet before your mind. That all of history is moving to a moment, and that the proud and those who oppose God through rebellion or through dead religion, that God will judge them. But that those who love Him and fear Him, be encouraged that a day is coming where there's going to be a day of healing and hope and eternal joy which will never end. He says, let that stir your sincere mind. Put that in your your head. God gave hundreds, some hundreds of Old Testament prophecies to look forward to that final day of judgment where God's Messiah would come and fix all wrong. He says also keep before you commandments. 
commandments of the Lord that are given through the apostles, right? So um, he may have been thinking something similar to, to this from Matthew 24, 42, where Jesus said, stay awake, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He says, you don't know when Jesus is coming. He could come back right now. That would be awesome. That'd be real good, all right? He could come back now. He says, so stay awake. And he's not just trying to get you to not fall asleep during my sermon. He's talking about spiritual sobriety here. Same, same kind of idea in, from, from James chapter 5. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that coming of the Lord should affect you. How? Well, the way you love one another. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The fact that Jesus is coming back is, is sweet and sobering for the Christian. Jesus is coming soon, and he wants us to be stirred in our minds towards sober, sincere, pure, heavenly-mindedness. So that's the first thing he talks about. Sincere minds. Keep the promises before you to keep you sober. Because the words that you hear from God that, you're, that are in your earbuds, well, those aren't the only things that are going to be coming. There's also going to be, number two, scoffing mouths. Scoffing mouths. Look again at verses 3 through 6. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are counted as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says the last days will bring scoffers. Now, I don't know about you, whenever I hear the, the idea of the last days, I either think of bad movies with Nicolas Cage, or I think of like some kind of you know, chart about how it's all going to go down and um, that kind of stuff. Well, biblically, whenever you see the phrase the last days or the end times, what it is talking about is the time period from when Jesus came the first time and when Jesus will come the second time. This is the end times. All of history was looking for the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant was saying, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, Jesus came, which began the final chapter of human history. Every moment that goes by is another page that's getting closer to the great end. We live, and when you think about it, time out. However long you think the world's been around, that's another sermon for another day, but, but however long people have been around, to think where we are in history is amazing. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was on the earth, almost. 2,000 years. We are close to the end. And I'm not just doing the, like what you'd expect a Baptist preacher to do, be like, it's the end of the world, get ready. But like, it's, it's really true. When you look at, at the sweep of human history, how long things have been going on, we near the end. And as those days drag on, scoffing abounds. Now, you can imagine for, in Peter's day, I mean, it's been about 30 years since Jesus was on the earth. They're like, 30 years, he ain't been back yet. How much more today? Scoffers means to mock or to ridicule. It's used, it's an interesting word picture of, 
of a childlike taunting, of what a bully might do if they knock somebody around and they kind of dance around them and taunt at them. That's, that's the picture that's being used here of, of scoffing. It's because you have a low estimation of something. You mock it. In this case, it's God and His Word. God's going to judge the world, huh? Sure He is, right? I've been saying that for how many thousands of years? Where's the proof? It's just a myth. Come on. That is the modern argument, right? That the, the, the laws of nature are constant. They don't get interrupted by supernatural intervention. The earth continues to spin. The sun continues to shine. Life continues to evolve. And we have no probable reason to expect any kind of intrusion by some supposed God. Now, many of us who sit in this room who now believe that the Bible is the Word of God used to believe exactly that same thing. We're like, yeah, that's exactly what I used to think. And that's the way that most, that many people think. But one of the things that, that God makes very clear in this section here is that that kind of posture, it is not a scholarship issue. It's not a scientific issue. It is a sin issue. Scoffing is a sin issue that flows from a heart that loves sin. Look at verse 3. Scoffers will come in their scoffing, following after their own sinful desires. False teachers and all those who were following them were denying the second coming of Jesus and any kind of final judgment. And Peter says the reason is because they love their sin. They love their sin. They don't want accountability. So they dismiss the evidence. What evidence? Well, verses 5 and 6. They deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. So he's talking about the creation on, on day two. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's the land appearing from the water on the third day in the book of Genesis. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking there about the flood. He says... People defiantly dismiss a historical fact about the flood. God judged the world one time before through a flood. And because of that, you can take it to the bank that God's going to do it again. He will judge historically again. Now, you may, you may know this, that some 200 cultures throughout the world have stories about a worldwide flood. So some people think, well, is this just a common folk tale that's been going on and the Bible has, has a version of it? Many scientists will affirm that there indeed was a flood, but will suggest that it was either the resulting of the last ice age and all of the water that came after that, or that it was a local flood that came after comets hit the earth and caused huge tidal waves. The Bible makes it very clear as to what happened. That there was a flood and that it was not bad luck or bad chance or just so happened. Genesis chapter 6 tells us what happened. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it grieved him to his heart. Which, whenever I read that verse, I just think about, what must God see today? Have you ever read blog posts and, like, the comments 
or Facebook comments, like what people say, out of the mouth speaks the heart. And God sees it all. So what did he do? He says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And there was a flood. And how did the flood happen? It was divine intervention. God opened the heavens above and the springs beneath, and he flooded the entire world in judgment. And, and Peter says here in verse 5 that people deliberately overlook this. It, it pictures them pushing aside facts as fables, as reading the biblical story and then closing it shut, or hearing the preaching of the truth of God's judgment and then rolling their eyes in judgment over the truth. God says, expect people to scoff at the truth. But know this, that as they scoff, they will be fulfilling the very word they deny. Because I'm telling you, they're going to do it. It was amazing. I, I'm, I'm trying to not make this song, or this ser- song. It's not a song either. It's a sermon, four hours long. But yesterday, I read through all kinds of quotes just from, from different people who would deny judgment and and. And it is amazing just to see, I'm like, you would think, do they read 2 Peter 2 and are tr- or 2 Peter 3 and are trying to, like, fulfill it? It's, it's amazing. Now, as I did that, I was also cautioned and, and reminded how all of us are prone to doubt what God says. Hear this. Loving sin will lead your heart and your mind away from submission to God's word. Loving sin will lead your heart and your mind away from submission to God's word. This is a great quote by Ligon Duncan, who uh, there was an inerrancy uh, conference this past week. He said this. He said, we all know, which we will now, we all know that heresy, that's error in teaching, leads to ungodliness. So bad teaching leads to bad living. But reverse is also true. Ungodliness leads to heresy as well. Why? Well, because something's got to give, right? It's either sin is going to be so uncomfortable in our life that we're going to repent of it by God's grace, or the truth will become so intolerable that we're going to have to alter it. We're going to have to change it. We're going to have to edit it and spiritualize it to allow our sin to remain. And what happens is that over time, it produces a callousness and a hard heart that is unwilling to hear or submit to God's word. So brothers and sisters, as we hear this about scoffing mouths, may we guard our hearts from ever scoffing at God's promises, from ever shutting our eyes to the light of his truth. Remember the promises of the prophets. He is coming. And do not allow false teachers who will prey on your pain and your disappointment and try and say, God's not really there. Do not listen to the scoffing mouth. Because, number three, there is a sure judgment that is coming. Number three, there is a sure judgment that is coming. Sincere minds, scoffing mouths, and now a sure judgment judgment. Look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
So when Noah stepped off the ark after the great judgment, God promised him something. He promised him, I will never flood the world again in judgment. But there is a day coming when God's mercy will cease and God will flood the world with fire. It will be a greater judgment than the one in the day of Noah. Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Verse 12. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That is a chilling prophecy. And listen, this is... if Take inventory for just a moment. If that is true... If that's true, that changes everything. Think about that for a moment. If that is true, if it's really true that all of history is moving to a moment and that God's fiery judgment will consume the universe, it changes everything. And do you notice what brings about this fiery judgment? It's God's word. Look at verse 7. The same word by which God spoke the world into existence is the same word by which he will speak it out of existence. The same word gives life and the same word takes life away. God had the first word at creation and though mockers mock that word now, he will have the final word on the last day. All that is seen will be consumed with fire. Verse 10. And this is what will remain. The works that are done on the earth will be exposed. The Greek word is eurisko. We get eureka. To see something. To lay bare. To bring out into the light. There's a day of judgment coming when all of the earth, that we know it, it will be dissolved with fire. And all that will remain before us is the truth. God's exposing word. God gives us a picture of what that last day will look like. Hear this from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11, about this sure judgment. This is John, the apostle who had been brought up into heaven, and he gets a view of the end. And he says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. That's what we just read about. And I saw the dead, that means everybody who's died, great and small, that means the famous and the forgotten, standing before the throne, that's the throne where Jesus, the King of kings, will be seated at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. What that means is that there is a record in heaven of everything. Everything. And he goes on to say that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second I want you to know, as uncomfortable as this may be for you to hear, it is uncomfortable for me to deliver. This is sobering. 
But we need to take the promises that have been given and lay them before our hearts and let them do what they are intended to do, which is to sober us. Imagine everything that you have ever done, every word that you have ever spoken, every thought that you've ever entertained, every search history you've deleted, every paper you've shredded, every twisted motive exposed before a holy God. Now, the higher your view is of God, the more terrifying that is. The lower your view of God, the less that seems like, well, I could probably slide by. Now, what that's supposed to do is it's supposed to make us say, I need help. Because, listen, y'all, if we were to put up on there, you're weak. Like, just what you thought from this past week. Imagine what that would be like before everybody in this room. You'd run out the door in shame, just like I would. But before a holy God, the one who's never done wrong and done nothing but be perfectly faithful, we would, it's intended to make us cry out, how could I stand on that day? How could I endure? How can all of those things that are in the book, who can scratch it out? Who can blot it out? Who can take care of that? Because I am doomed. prophet Isaiah gives you a good word. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. How? That's why Jesus comes. See, Jesus is not just some Christian mascot. Like He's the Savior of the world. He comes and sheds His blood and for those who will trust in that blood to be the judgment that they deserved, it should have been me that received judgment, but He did it. And he was raised to prove he's the righteous one. And anybody who will say it should have been my blood and his righteousness is all that I have. Anybody who will turn away from trusting themselves and living in a rebellion against God. You know what God does? He cancels the debt. It's called forgiveness. He says all the things that were written in the book, they are blotted out. They're covered with blood. Just like in the Old Testament, every year they'd offer up blood and put it on the mercy seat so God, when he looked down, he would not see his broken law, but he would see the shed blood of an animal who died in the place of the nation. Well, so there was one who died in the place of God's people, so that when he looks down now upon those books, he finds not our name. Because our name is written in another book, the Lamb's Book of Life, for all those who have trusted in Christ and been born again. All of life is moving to a moment. God will, he will silence scoffers. And he will either do it in wrath or he'll do it in mercy. You remember the story of Sarah? Sarah was married to Abraham. Abraham gets that call, hey, go to the land, I will show you. He moves when he's 75. God makes a promise, I'm going to give you son. 25 years he waits. On On year 24, God shows up at Abraham's tent and he's talking to him and he says, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. Do you remember what Sarah does? It says she laughs. She's busting up in the kitchen being like, I'm 90, y'all. This ain't happening. Like She's like, no. She laughs at God's promise. But you know what God does? He gives her grace and he keeps his promise. 
She had counted it slowness, but he was working out his plan, and she couldn't see it all. And you know what? They had a baby. Anybody know what the son's name was? Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. God says, you go, every time you're going to call it out, you're going to remember that time you was laughing in the kitchen, girl. <laughs> say, hey, laughter, come on in. I remember, Lord, yes. <laughs> That's what he does. God can do that in mercy. That we who used to mock at his promises, that used to scoff at his promises, we're now singing his praises. It's mercy. God can do that. It's good news for sinners. I remember when I was in college, I had these, there were five of us who lived in, in the house. It was Craig, the Jewish bookie. There was Frank, the Catholic guy. There was um, Kyle, who was the frat guy. There was Corey, the accountant. Um, and then there was, there was me, who was the, the reveler. And I remember one time we're all sitting at breakfast, which breakfast was like at noon, and we're talking, and we're talking about God for some reason. Somehow it came up. And we're talking about heaven, and Frank, the Catholic guy, he looked at me and he goes, you're definitely going to hell. And I remember sitting there, and I was bothered, because I was a lot better than Kyle was. Like, I just, and that's the first thing I thought, is like, Kyle's bad, not me. And if you would have known my life, like, I, I, was, I was the furthest thing from being right with God. My whole life was about me. But in that moment, I remember scoffing at the idea that God would judge somebody who is as nice as me. But God in his mercy and in his divine humor now makes me a preacher. And every week, I'm telling other people about that mercy. Do not scoff at it. Because there is a sure judgment that is coming. And the reason that it doesn't come as quickly as some people think it should is because, number four, there is a sympathetic patience that God has. A sympathetic patience. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says, do not overlook this one fact. It's the same word from verse 5. That the scoffers were overlooking evidence. He says, don't you fall into what they're doing. Don't let this fact escape you. And it's in the present tense. Keep on not letting this fact escape you. I'm sure it's terrible grammar, but it's great theology. Keep this before you. Don't let this get out of your mind. There's a perspective that you must protect. There is an outlook that you must not overlook. And it's this, that God fulfills his promises with perfect timing. God fulfills his promises with perfect timing. He says, beloved saints, do not be confused by his calendar. He's being slow on purpose. He hasn't forgotten his word. He hasn't gone on some kind of eternal vacation. He is not some absentee landlord. This is where humility is required for us. Because to properly worship and trust God, we must have in our hearts the inconceivable distance between Him and us. He's so not like us. 
We're made in His image. But we are not God. He is high and lifted up and seated on. I mean, He's enthroned on the cherubim of glory. Like, I don't even know what that means, but that's amazing. Like, that's, uh, He is far above us. When the angels are before Him, they're crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. There's none like Him. God is wonderfully set apart from us. His wisdom is the depths of it we'll never be able to touch. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. His compassion is so patient. His patience. Now some count God's slowness to fulfill promises to judge the world as a sign of His deficiency. Where is He at? But the reality is that instead it's actually a sign of His sympathy. Consider God's calendar. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We've got to remember that that God inhabits eternity. And from where He sits, all things, past, present, and future, are ever before Him. So, His delaying of a thousand years isn't much different than us delaying something for an hour or for a day. He is the I Am. He sees things from the beginning to the end. One pastor gave uh, an an illustration that I'm going to kind of rework a little bit, but I thought was really helpful. Imagine that you're on a boat in a river, in a canyon. Canyon, there's a river going, you're in a boat. And you're paddling along, and you know that you're going to the ocean. Okay? Everything that you see and experience is kind of right around you. You see what's happening right there from, from the boat. But then, now, draw back and see up on the mountain ridge that overlooks the whole canyon. And there is one who up there sees a much bigger picture. And we'll liken this to God. The one who sits back, as it were, who is transcendent above all things, who sees the very spring from which that river sprung at creation. And he sees the ocean of eternity to which it's flowing. And he sees us in our little boat down here paddling around. He sees the whole thing. From his perspective, a day is a thousand years. And a thousand years, it's a day. It's because of where he enthroned in, in heaven. The amazing thing about our transcendent God who sees time and history like that is that he also comes down off the mountain and gets in the boat with us what Jesus did. He came and he got in the boat with the disciples so when the storm is raging he can stand up with them and say hush, be still, and shut down the storm. So he's on the mountain and he sees all things but he enters into our world as well. He's that God. He's the God who is transcendent above us and imminent with us. He's that kind of of God. And some some will say it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus was, said he was coming back. Seems like he's forgotten. Seems long. And it, it does seem long at times, doesn't it? Certainly seems long to the sufferer. When you're suffering, it feels long waiting on the promises. I mean, think, think about our sister Janet Dennis, who's been in the hospital and then in a nursing home and then back in a hospital for weeks now. Can you imagine however busy your week has been and seemed to just fly right back? Can you imagine how slow it is for our sister? 
That, by the way, is what biblical love calls us to do. It calls us to think, how do other people feel right now? That's why you go visit people in the hospital. That's why you care about people and their suffering. But imagine that. It's just when people are suffering. That's why Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It also seems long to the scoffer. Where is he at? Doesn't seem to be fulfilling any promises. But the amazingly ironic thing is that, that they don't get why God, who if he's a good God, why didn't he judge? But they don't, they don't get the fact that the reason that God is being slow in carrying out his promises is because his calendar is organized by compassion. God's calendar is ordered by compassion. God's compassion. The, the Lord is not slow as some count slowness. Scoffers sit around with, with stopwatches and scowl at God's apparent slowness to bring about his promises as evidence that he's not going to keep his word. That's why you don't need to trust him, and that's why you don't need to fear some kind of final judgment. But Peter says, no, no, no. Don't misunderstand God's patience. He's not slow because he's sleeping. He's slow because he's sympathetic. He's slow because he's compassionate. He's being patient because he loves his people and he's not desiring that any of them should perish, but for them to all to hear the gospel and to reach repentance. To see Jesus for who he is, to cast aside idols, and to flee unto him for salvation so that they might be forgiven. How many of you are eternally grateful that Jesus didn't come back ten years ago? How many of you are really glad Jesus didn't come back ten years ago? Because you would be in hell. Aren't you glad that his timing is not our timing? Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat sinners as we would treat sinners? He is patient. He does not desire any to perish. But for all of his people to come to the truth. Romans 11.25 says that God is waiting until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. He's waiting for all of his prodigal sons to come home. He's calling them home. He's patient. Calling home sheep by sheep, all who know his name. And the delay of the return of Jesus is an act of mercy until all the flock comes in. But the false teachers and all who fall into the same error of arrogance are taking the time that God gives them for repentance and they're throwing it in his face as an argument for his unreliability. Isn't that... Imagine that day, standing before the God of glory, if he were to say, why did you take the time that I gave you to repent and turn it around as an argument for your unbelief? On that day, there will be silence. So friends, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your heart. Because, number five, there is a swift arrival. Though he has sympathetic patience, there will be a swift arrival. When the day comes, it's coming, and nothing's stopping it. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. 
So while it seems like the Lord is being slow in His coming, when He comes, He will come swiftly. You won't be able to plan for it when it's happening. There'll be no like, oh, I'll get it together now. Just as it's too late to slow down when the police lights are flashing, and it's too late to lock the door when the thief is inside, so there will be no time to prepare for Jesus other than now. Today is the day of salvation. Hear this from Matthew 24, which ties well this first judgment of Noah with the second coming of Christ, or yeah, the coming of Christ and his judgment. Concerning that day, meaning the day that Jesus returns and judges the world, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you see how he uses that? Peter draws on the teaching of Jesus in Second Peter here. He says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Are you ready right now for the Lord's return? I don't know what idols you're clinging to, but cast them down. I don't know what lies you're hiding, but today is the day to bring them into the light and to confess them. Today is the day to both courageously and compassionately call your friends and neighbors to believe in Jesus. And if you are here among us this morning and you don't know Jesus, I just want you to understand the mercy that God is showing you right now. Because this day will be seen again on that last day. The mercy that God is showing you now to hear this word of warning, which may make you angry. It may frustrate you. It may seem delusional to you. But if it's true, if it is true, then it is the word of life. And I would call you to turn away from your sin and to believe in Jesus. Do not resist him. Come to Christ. Cry out and say, I have rebelled. Forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on my place, in my place on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. And it's not praying a prayer that saves you. It is the transforming of a heart that God is awakening you to see truth. Trust Him. Draw near to Him for the day of His arrival is quickly drawing near to you. And sixthly and finally, sanctified people. Sanctified people. Verses 11 through 13. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning the world, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The certainty about a final day of exposing evaluation ought to change us. It ought to give us a sincere and sober mind that ought to impact the way that we walk now. Think about it. What sin will be you what sin will you be glad that you indulged in on that last day? There'll be none. When you, when you hear this, I don't know what it does for you, but in my study of it, it made sin look so stupid. It's just utterly foolishness to rebel against the God who made us. When he sees it, and we think that we can hide, but he sees it. It should change us, inspire us, that because of his mercy, we ought to love him. And you can't muster that up, but we plead for him to do that. Think, think about the way it makes what, what we're living our lives for. The fact that your, your house, your car, your clothes, your degrees, your trophies will all one day be just burnt up and gone. I remember when I was moving one time, I, I took all of my trophies, thousands of them, um, and um, it wasn't that many. Um, I took all my trophies and... I, got, I just threw them away. I just didn't care anymore. My whole life growing up was about basketball. And the older I get, the better I was. But um, I used to have some trophies from, from playing hoops. And I remember there was just a point where I was like, I just didn't care anymore. And I didn't have any place to store them. So I threw them all away, all except one. This one trophy, we got a, this three-on-three basketball tournament. And if you lose your first two games in the tournament, then they put you into what's called the toilet bowl division. And... Uh, we won the toilet bowl division. So in my office, I have a golden toilet bowl that sits on my, on my shelf to remind me that that's basically what all your trophies are. It just is. It's just all going to go away. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And all the things that we consume our time and attention with, in light of eternity, should it not shape us? Are there not sweeter things that we ought to pursue now? Eternal treasures to store up. What should we do? Well, wait for, verse 12, and hasten the coming of the day of God. Those words describe an eager expectation, a suspense, a hanging on every second with anticipation. Anticipation of verse 13, that according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. His promises serve for the Christian as a magnet for our souls and our affections to lift us up, to not love the world, but to look to him. That's why he says, keep those promises and keep those commandments before your eyes. Let them be that firewood in the stove of your your heart that it might burn and that you might consider the world to come. Lifting our eyes and our hope toward heaven. Second Corinthians 4.18 We look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's people are to be guided by and guarded by the fact that Jesus right now is preparing a place for us to be with Him forever. A place where mocking will be muted. Scoffing will be silenced. Sinning will be ceased. Pain will be put down. Cancer will be cured forever. Abuse will be abolished. Oppression will be overturned. And all we will know is a land of righteousness where Jesus is king. A glorious king. Peter says, set your heart on that place. And what it will do is it will free you to enjoy this life rightly, but it will guard you from loving it wrongly in a way that would steal your soul. Now in two weeks when we get back into 2 Peter 3, we're gonna, we'll start back in verse 11 and meditate a little more on how this ought to transform us. But what we're going to do now with hopes that Jesus would interrupt it with his return is we're going to turn to the Lord's table and our brother Shai is going to come and going to lead us in a reflection and a remembrance of Christ. Would you pray for me as we prepare for that? Father in heaven, we come before you now and say thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises and the commands that you give to your people to stir our hearts and our minds toward home. Father, we pray that wherever we are this morning that you would meet us there and that you would draw us unto repentance. God, if there be anything in us that we're holding on to that needs to go, that God, you would show it to us. Lord, might you give us eternal eyes and a heart that longs to be with you forever. May that trump all else. Oh God, protect us, guard us, watch over us. And Father, send Jesus soon. In his name we pray.